call the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. Good afternoon. I'm Cindy Adams, Madam Adams, from the Monday through Thursday columns in the New York Post. Listen, being a reporter, let me tell you the newest on New York City's coming legit theater season. Everything's changing. Climate, friendships, politicians, prices, masks, yes, masks, no. Today, it's theater. In modern times, what once was our high-class theatrical life upon the wicked stage, now it's a wicked life upon the outside stage. Forget unloading a few C-notes to sit inside seeing a show. Now it's outside. I, my very own self, dragged downtown to what New York City calls the Meatpacking District. It's what used to be the Slaughterhouse region. It's now turned into an art house region. It's sitting outside on bar mitzvah-type skinny metal chairs and watching actors who are inside. The show is titled Seven Deadly Sins. It's seven mini-playlets about greed, lust, the seven deadly sins. The actors act inside a cubicle, behind glass. They're dry and comfy. They talk on mics. The audience is outside, in the night fog or mist or heat or whatever, with headphones. The actors stay. After each 10-minute presentation, the actors remain. The audience moves. Seven separate mini-sets are put up over a couple of streets. Clever, innovative, in the meatpacking district. Will this win any Tony? No. A sirloin, maybe. One of the playlists was, list, was titled Watch. It's about a brother and sister fighting over a dead father's will. But do not think Shakespeare. The evening is heavy on sex. Any variation you can think of. Costumes, great. Setups, great. Idea, great. One playlet titled Lust has actress Donna Carno pole dancing, doing it with a pole. So expressive she could end up with conditions only a gynecologist can cure. Patrons with marginal carnal knowledge might find the gymnastics a smear over the top and bottom. It was more movement than I experienced on my wedding night, and the writhing is voiced by pre-recorded Cynthia Nixon. A great load of people are involved, begun in Miami, who found the bar mitzvah chairs, I don't know. I do know those involved are thinking some nice heated indoor space to produce seven deadly sins come winter. Meanwhile, if you're into what's theatrical or sexual and don't mind sitting on metal chairs on cobblestone blocks alongside closed storefronts, go. It's a one-of-a-kind experience. I'm back again after our station break and speaking with my longtime friend, Judge Judy. A name you know who's in the know. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Judge Judy, 
May I love Judge Judy. Everybody loves Judge Judy. A lifetime on CBS TV. The highest paid name on television. Heard and seen all over the world. In the bush, in India, looking for white tigers. We saw her on TV. So, Judge Judy, born in New York. Were you always this wise, smart-ass, fastest mouth in town growing up? (laughs) You know, I'm a Brooklyn girl. So, Brooklyn girls had certain street smarts. We were not always academically gifted. But, (laughs) I mean, we knew knew how to cross the street in two-way traffic. And (laughs) we learned survival skills. So I don't think wisdom comes with anything but experience and age, if, if I have a dab of that at all. Uh, I think, you, you know, if you grow up and you learn lessons from mistakes or from good experiences that you want to replicate, that makes you smart and wise. That's just common sense. Uh, and I think that there are people probably all over who have that, but... New Yorkers have to start learning it early. What mistakes? Do you remember making a mistake growing up? You know, it's interesting, Cindy. Charles Grodin wrote a book. And he really didn't write it. What he did was he asked a lot of people that he know, mostly celebrities that you would recognize, whose names you would recognize, to do a little chapter about mistakes that they have made. Yeah. So I really, you know, he asked me to do it, and I said I would. Um, And then I started to think about it. Mistakes. And I preferred not to call them mistakes. I preferred to call them learning experiences. Yes, smartass. Go ahead. And (laughs) I remember (laughs) submitting my couple of pages to him, and he said, no, what we really want you to discuss is mistakes. (laughs) <laughs> I said to him, listen, either use the chapter, don't use the chapter. Or you're shove it, or shove it. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. I mean, if you're smart, even if you do something that turns out badly, you can turn it around if you have a positive outlook and a positive feeling about yourself. And you say, you know what? I'm going to put a period at the end of this chapter. And I take away from it certain information which makes me smarter. In other words, that's what you're doing with this question. Is that it? That is exactly (laughs) what I'm doing with this question. If I made a mistake, I'm not telling you. I got it. Wait, can you, can you, back, 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 back a thousand years. Can you recall, Judy, what it felt really like when you did your first tryout 25-ish years ago? The first shot you ever did when you were trying out? You mean for the, for the CBS program? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I felt very comfortable. I had already been sitting on a real bench for 14 years at that point. Yeah. When I, we did the pilot. And although the lights and the people, you know, the ancillary people that make the whole thing work, you know, you're lighting people, your audio people, the director, the stage manager, all of those people were around me. I was able to focus on litigants yeah. and remove all that peripheral vision that, you know, you might have. And so I felt really totally comfortable. I didn't feel like a fish out of water. I did what I 
was, tr- you know, grew up, was trained to do. And I really didn't, it really wasn't a hard learning curve. I wish I could tell you that it was, that it was but it was not a hard learning curve. No scared? No scared? Well, I, I don't think I was scared. I knew going in that most things that are produced for television fail. Yeah. You, you know, companies spend tens of millions of dollars to produce a pilot. To, to, and, and so the audience connects with so few of them. The viewing audience connects with, you know, a certain number of people. Yeah. Either, they either love you or they hate you. I remember a cute story, Cindy. Yeah. Jerry and I, after a couple of years, <clears throat> were sitting in Tau Bagel on First Avenue because we had an apartment there. And I don't know if you're familiar with the place. I know I... I, I Tau Bagel? I've of course I'm familiar with it. With Tau Bagel. <laughs> and I mean, it, you know, we're not talking Le Cirque here. We're talking about... <laughs> yeah, I got it. I got you it. Know, you yeah. wait online for a bagel and <laughs> yeah. tell them what you want and then you take a tray and they... Allow you one splendor with a cup of coffee. That it's that kind of place, but they have great bagels. Uh, we were sitting and having our coffee and a bagel in the morning, and there were two women. I would say older women, but they were probably younger than I am. And one of them was saying to the other, "I can't stand that program, Judge Judy. <laughs> she is rude and." went on and on and she said I watch her every day and I just don't understand what it is that people see in her and the other one said to her you know I watch her too I sort of like her she gets to the point you know she doesn't drain on so much drain on so much and I looked at Jerry and I said I know I've come into the entertainment industry rather than (laughs) viewing myself as a judge on the bench because I don't care whether the audience likes me or not, as long as they watch. Because that. Well, so it, you, it, it was a it was an, a moment for you. I mean, with the two a, yentas, it, it was yeah, a moment. It was, right, it was a moment. It it said, you know what? You're in the entertainment business, and you hope that people will like you. But. Uh, but basically, but, screw it. You're doing uh, what. A judge should do. Is that it? I do. I do what I think is right. Yeah. And, you know, my personality and my delivery is comes naturally to me. Oh, yeah. If well, you, let's get over that. Okay. But, it, you know, the, the way I may not have judicial demeanor. And I put those words in quotes. You know, I think that Joe Wapner had judicial demeanor. That's why he's off the air. But he was boring. Yes. He was boring. I mean, he was a, a, a nice man. He had cards. He had help helping him make decisions. He would take a break and go in the back and discuss it with his executive producer and his lawyers. I'm more a... This feels and smells and tastes like justice. And... That and I and that's the delivery. And if you're a bad guy, I'm prepared to tell you and dress you down. And some people who think that it's, you know, just a camera in a courtroom. I once said to somebody who wrote a nasty article, I said, you know, 
nobody really thought Alan Alda did surgery on MASH. <laughs> he played a doctor. I know he was convincing, but it's a television That's great. program. That's great. That's great. It's a, it's a television program. So... Um, Listen, you're the fastest mouth in the West. When you were a family court judge, your friends then, what did they think of you going to L.A. to try out for a TV show? It's a whole different milieu. What did they think? You mean friends or colleagues? Pick whatever you want. I'm, fl- I'm flexible. You're flexible. Okay. Okay. Uh, colleagues, you know, I'm not sure, Cindy. Yeah. I jealousy, jealousy? Maybe. And I think a certain amount of that exists today, although there are a lot of judges in very high places who I meet occasionally at a dinner who yeah. ask whether I'm starting an, another program and they're available. <laughs> that's nice. Uh, oh, that's so nice. Because, because although I must tell you, being a family court judge and supervising judge in the family court in Manhattan was very gratifying for me from a career perspective and from the kind of work that I did and knowing that I did at times positively change a family, which can have an impact. I know you did. You, you've told me a few stories that you still live with, although they happened 25, 30 years ago, more, with families. Now, now more. <laughs> now longer ago. But those were, you know, those cases stay with you. But judges are civil servants. And although they're paid reasonably, you're not going to become a rich person on a judge's salary. So when you said how your colleagues feel, I think that some were excited, you know, at the prospect. I So I think that some resented. I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't care. Do you still have friends from 100 years ago? I do. I have friends from 100 years ago. No colleagues from the family court. Mm. <laughs> uh, it's not, and but when I think about it, we we were colleagues in the court, and my friends and our social life were totally different, and and I think about Jerry. I say, well, is that a little peculiar? Not on a, now that I'm thinking about it, and I think about Jerry, who was on the bench for longer than I was, and he doesn't keep in touch with any of his colleagues either. Occasionally, I mean, and not that we haven't seen them over the years once or twice, but doesn't keep in touch. We tend to stay with a few really close friends who we know and can trust. Do you remember, I mean, I know your story with your clergy shoes. Do you remember the first thing you treated yourself to when you started to earn big money? I mean, you've earned the largest amount of money on television than anyone. Do you remember what you, what you, you treated well, yourself to? Well, you, you remember probably my telling you the story. I had a friend who was very stylish, and she wore Robert Clergeret's shoes, walking shoes. Yeah. And I thought that they were really handsome looking, <laughs> um, mostly on her, but not so much on me. Okay, okay. But yeah. I, 
but I could only afford to buy them on sale. So the only ones that they ever put on sale in the stores were either in navy <laughs> or brown. And, you know, if you wear black slacks, you have to hope nobody looks real closely that your <laughs> shoes aren't black. After I had been in California and doing the show for about eight or nine months, uh, my husband and I were driving up Beverly Drive, and there was a Robert Clarget store, and it said sale. And I said, stop the car. <laughs> and I walked in, and of course... The Navy were on sale half price, not yeah. black. And so I treated myself to a pair of black Clarget shoes, uh. which was now 24 years ago. So it was raining this morning, and as you know, and I was taking the dog out for a walk. I go and open my closet. Don't and tell me. Don't tell me. Don't Robert tell me. Lingerie shoes. Oh, oh my God. And I mean, oh. you know, they had very thick soles. They don't wear out. You don't wear them every day. So I try to put them on, but I think my foot shrunk. Oh, honey. Oh, my God. That's hilarious. I mean, I couldn't wear them, but I keep them as a memento. Oh, by all means. Why don't you make planters out of them? You make $55 million a year and you're wearing old schleppy shoes. I mean, really? No, I'm supposed to wear good shoes in a hurricane. Okay, fine. Now, <laughs> you're very funny. In your early, early, early days, did you feel deep in your gizzard that someday you'd really be something as a kid? When You mean when I was a child? I don't know. Growing up, did you, did you ever feel that you were going to did be? Did I some? ever think that yeah. I, well, I thought I was a big deal when I graduated from law school. And... As a matter of fact, I was going through some old stuff, which many of us did during the pandemic. Yeah. And I came across, which I'm opening a drawer to get out to find for you. I came across my Cunningham Junior High School, Junior High School yearbook. You know, oh. when you graduated from the eighth grade. Oh, God. Yeah. And you have to know that I had a real love for my father, a kind of love for my father that you had for your mother. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, and he was, in I, most of my life, he was a cheerleader for me and told me I could be whatever I wanted to be. And I came across what he wrote in my junior high school Cunningham Junior High School yearbook dated June 21st, 1957. Oh, oh. <laughs> yes. Dear Judy, I'm tired of writing something in one of your albums every, and he wrote this in Yiddish, Monday and Doomsday. You've graduated so many times already, you should at least be something. <laughs> That's something worthwhile. The next album you bring to me, I expect that I should be able to address you as dear doctor, dear teacher, or dear star. In the meantime, I wish you all the luck in the world in attaining your next goal. You'll need it. Love, Debbie. That's terrific. I know it sounds funny, and I know we're laughing, but that's, that's terrific. That's prescient. That's prescient of him. Yeah. It really was. Yeah. So I was lucky, and I think that most most adults who would achieve, not only achieve success, but are happy people, happy with themselves, had parents who 
were encouraging, who let them dream their dreams, were supportive of their was supportive of their adventures as long as their adventures were sane. Listen, we, you and I, even so, we, uh, I've heard this famous Judge Judy on TV sets, even in the jungles of India. Not everyone knows about the early unknown Judy, but now I'd like to know about the future Judy. What about your new coming show? What can you tell us? Can you tell us anything? I can, well, the only thing that I can tell you is there will be a star, and that would be me. And I will be doing the only thing that I know. I will not be taking over Alan Alda doing heart surgery. I will be doing, uh-huh. I will be doing trials yeah. uh, involving litigants. We'll, we are trying, and we are succeeding in getting cases that are... Um, a little different from what my former show produced. There are other kinds of cases out there. We've increased the monetary award uh, from 5000 to 10000 a case so that we can expand the kinds of courts we can go into to get, to get cases. Uh, there will be additional people in front of the camera. I'm not going to tell you about that now. That has to be a little bit of a surprise. But there will only be one judge. Uh, I'm excited to, I'm actually excited on working in a new, the streaming is a whole new adventure. Um, I'm not exactly sure how it will impact me because I'm just doing my own thing. It will impact the way people receive the product. They can watch it on an iPad or their telephone, which It's terrific. I just have to come into this millennium with devices. And you know very well I'm challenged with devices. But... What, what about what about what you're wearing? Is it the same black robe? Is it a one-hour show? What is it? What can you say? What can you tell I can us? Tell you, I can tell you that I've chosen a robe color that is more suitable and flattering. Which means what? Which means it's a different color. <laughs> this I could figure out myself. I mean, is there anything else you can... I mean, a robe is a robe. It's not a shroud. It's a robe. Okay. And it has to look the same. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've... I've have eliminated the lace collar. Oh, muzzle top, but yeah. But not eliminated a collar. And that's for, that's, you know, that's for... for well, what is it? Is it a choker? Is it pearls? No. What? No, it's not. You have to tune... <laughs> when you see it advertised, you'll tune in, and then it will gratify... I will be gratified that I will have at least an audience of one. Oh, mazel tov. Yeah, okay. So you can't tell us anything. I have you on the air, so you can't tell me anything. Is that well, it? Well, I've answered all of your <laughs> questions. I don't know. I, I've answered all of your questions other than those that I am contractually bound not to answer. Okay. What is your off-duty lifestyle? I mean, Judge Judy is so famous. What does she do? Do you read? Do you knit? Do you sing? Do you collect tsetse flies? What do you do? Well, besides breathe heavy, what do you well, do? Well, <laughs> this, this morning I opened one eye and looked outside and hoped that it wasn't pouring because I had to take my puppy for a walk. And when I open my eyes, and when most people open their eyes, they go from the bedroom to the bathroom. And and I knew as soon as I stirred, I was going to have to take her out. 
so as you know, this morning at seven o'clock in the morning, the yeah. rain was coming down in yeah. sheets. Yeah, yeah. In sheets, you could have turned the pages of the sheets <laughs> in the rain. So I took her out for a walk because I had an eight o'clock hairdresser appointment because I'm going to start filming the show in a week and the hair needed a little lift. I thought you needed it for radio. Like no, <laughs> no, for radio, I could, could stay in my pajamas. Okay. Uh, and home open mayo. I have... Okay. Some grandchildren around here who want lunch, they want dinner. I have cases, some that I've already received from the program that I will go over later this afternoon. I'm going to spend a few minutes with you on the phone. I had to clear all my other calls because I didn't want anybody to call me during this call because I have another line and I don't know how to turn off that line. <laughs> so, Listen, I had enough of you, Judge Judy. I mean, I really love you. I really love you to pieces. I don't know why you would name your new dog Joey, a girl dog named after my late husband. That's another wanna, conversation. <laughs> it's another It's another conversation. I love you, too. I want to ask you a question. What? Before you say goodbye to me. What? Do you like doing radio? I'm not so sure. I like doing radio. I'm not so sure because it. you have to come to a certain studio, and I'm not used to doing that. I'm used to working in my own home. But... I'm getting I'm getting used to it, especially when I can get a Judge Judy on the phone. Oh, that's very sweet of you and a perfect way to say goodbye. I love you. I, I love, love you. I love, goodbye, baby. Bye. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Right now, I'm going to talk with Joseph Abud, a big name in fashion, especially back when we had some. His mom was a seamstress and her son won the Best Menswear Designer Award two years in a row. So, Joe, how did it all start for you? How? Thank you. Well, Cindy, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm such a fan, and you're such a New York legend. Um, and uh, I will tell you, Cindy, that I uh, have a degree in English comparative literature, and uh, I was lucky enough to get a scholarship to go to the Sorbonne in Paris. My parents could have never afforded that. That's back in the early 70s. And I saw a world of glamour and yeah. beauty that I'd never seen as a working class uh, family in Boston. And I think that's where I got the bug. But then you worked. You were, Didn't you start with Ralph Lauren in some way? Did, how did you go from the Sorbonne yeah. to Ralph Lauren? <laughs> That's a good question. I, um, when I graduated college, I had three options. I was offered a teaching job at Brookline High School in Boston. Yeah. Uh, I was going to go on to graduate school studying journalism. But then I was working part-time in a great, great uh, clothing store in Boston called Louis of Boston, where I first met Ralph Lauren. And uh, years later, uh, Ralph called and offered me a job to move to New York from Boston and uh, that was my first stint with a real, true legend, Ralph Lauren, and I worked with him for five years in design. What was he doing in Boston? Well, he first came to visit the store where oh. I was working, oh. and that's where I first met him. Okay. Uh, and uh, I always tell the story, uh, he's the first person that ever said, uh, hey, Joe, do you know you look like Dean Martin? And that's the first thing Ralph Lauren ever said to me. So, uh, But he is a legend. Cindy and uh, one of the great American designers. And so I started 
with him, and then uh, later on I decided to start my own collection. I'm not sure that it's so easy to start a collection. I'm not sure it's so easy to start anything the way the world is. Was it smooth sailing for you in the beginning, or was it difficult? What was it? You know, uh, Cindy, I think it's never... It's more, You're right. It's more difficult now than it's ever been for a lot of reasons. But when I launched my first collection in 1987, I, I said to myself the night before I opened my first collection... Why am I doing this? Who needs another designer? Yeah. But I was fortunate enough to touch a nerve with the American consumer in that um, I had something to say that wasn't out there. But it wasn't easy, and there are always challenges. There are financial challenges. There are strategic challenges. There are people challenges. And you need a lot of, you know, being a designer is... uh, no walk in the park if you want to be successful. No, it isn't. But what did you have? I mean, if, if there's anybody who doesn't know your your designs, what was it you had that you had something to offer? I mean, men yeah. wear pants and they wear T-shirts and they wear lousy jackets. <laughs> what is it you did that was so special? That's, uh, that's great, Cindy. Well, um, I basically there was two schools of thought in men's fashion. There was the very preppy Ivy League, uh, Ivy League American, you know, little preppy clothes. And then there were really fast European clothes. So I have always said my collection landed in the middle of the Atlantic because I tried to make American men be more sophisticated, you know, and reach for style. And I also wanted to attract European customers who loved, you know, the sensibility of American clothes. So I found a spot really right in the middle of Atlantic between Ralph Lauren and Giorgio Armani. That's where I landed. Well, something something great must have happened because I remember, I seem to remember that Kim Cattrall, when, when, in, in the Sex in the yes. City days, didn't she give you some award for something? Yes, she did. Kim, who is just quite an unbelievable talent, uh, she gave me the second uh, menswear designer of the year award. And... You'll love this, Cindy. She was given a speech, but she threw the speech away. And she got, you know, all kind of uh, sexy and cool and fun. And the audience was aghast, but she was brilliant. Uh, And Kim, you know, as you know, is just such a talented actress and has had great success. So she was a great friend, and it was really an honor that she gave me my award. My arm was broken then, and I had a hard time. I had a a beautiful ca- cashmere sling. You would have loved it. So I was still trying to be dashing with a broken arm, and I could barely lift the award, but she did present it to me. How'd you break your arm? I was playing squash, and I, uh, I Not easy to get that and... in a conversation, playing squash. We all play squash. Everybody growing up in Brooklyn plays squash, honey. We all do that. <laughs> I know. It's, uh, I don't know how I ended up there, but it's, uh, it's a great sport, and I have fun with it. It's, okay, you know, you... it's a stretch killer. You tell me, you're telling me about how these great fashions that you did. I don't understand about fashions with men today. They look like schlumps. Their crotch grazes the floor. The, the, the crotch of their pants graze the floor. It shows the yeah. crack in the middle of their behind. They're wearing lousy T-shirts. What is fashion for men today? What? What does that well, mean? Cindy, you, you hit the nail on the head. I will tell you that we need a return to glamour and elegance, especially in New York City, the fashion capital of America. Uh, I think the pandemic sent everybody home in their sweatshirts and their khakis and their sweatpants, and it's time to get dressed. Now, it might be a more difficult challenge 
because people are used to not getting dressed up. But look at all the great restaurants we have in New York and the great stores. We need people to start thinking about bringing glamour back to New York City. And it's not going to be easy, but we have to try. So what are you going to do? What are you going to, how are you going to dress them? In what? Well, Cindy, you know what seems to be happening very specifically? Guys are tending to buy softer jackets so that they have, you know, a guy is dressed when he has a jacket on. Yeah. Let's say he has a nice pair of jeans, but he put on a beautiful blazer and maybe a crisp white shirt. Yeah. And he looks a little bit more dressed up. He doesn't have to have a tuxedo on right away. Uh, but we've got to get guys to start thinking about dressing for work again because they're going back to the office or to start dressing socially. Meet your girlfriend's parents. Meet your new boss. You've got to start getting dressed up again. Well, that would be that would be nice. Um, yeah, I think so. Tell me, tell me about the the celebrities at at awards shows. Didn't they ever get their own stuff? Didn't they ever actually buy? Now it's all from whatever's called a stylist. What the hell is a stylist? How does that work? Well, a stylist came into existence in the last 20, 25 years. It became sort of this new profession where people didn't trust their own tastes anymore. Cindy, they yeah. needed to rely on somebody else. It's kind of like wedding planners, right? Yeah. Um, years ago, there were no wedding planners. Now, someone does it all for you. I, I think you lose a little bit of your own personality with styles. I mean, if you look at, at a guy, let's say, like George Clooney, a very handsome guy. You know, yeah, when he yeah. comes out on an awards uh, event, he's got a beautifully tailored tuxedo with the right bow tie. He's not trying to make a fashion statement. And men shouldn't try too hard. Their clothes shouldn't walk into the room before they do. Uh, and I think, you know, handsome guys and well-dressed guys, it's the whole package. It's not what they're wearing. It's not a naked lady on their tie. You know what I mean? Well, I don't know what I mean. I only know everybody is overdressed. Their boobs are hanging out. Their behinds are hanging out. The dresses yeah. are too yeah. tight. The guys are looking like schlumps. I just don't understand whatever happened to fashion at all. Well, well, well Cindy, you knew the great Bill Blass. Yes, I did. You knew Oscar de la Renta. Yes. You knew that these guys yes. were about style. Yes. They weren't about, it wasn't all about being sexy and... You know, every, as you said, everything, you know, out there, they were about gorgeous style. And all the women that get the most recognition in the award shows are really not the sensational dressers, but the well-dressed women, you know, gorgeous gowns and carrying themselves elegantly. Um, that's the difference. And fashion has to got fashion's going through a crisis right now. And it's clear that we need to get some equilibrium here. Really do. It's time to just kind of get smart about it and get dressed up again the right way. Well, if if you if you loan some clothes from a yeah. stylist or whatever or from your own collection yeah. for an award, can't you can you always tell if they're actually going to wear yours or they're going to wear somebody else's and do they ever come back ruined or torn with or, or with cigarette burns? Yeah. Well, the answer to all of those is Yes, you never know when you lend clothes if you'll uh, if the if the if the actor or actress is going to wear them because they probably have clothes from twenty different designers 
And they generally come back unusable, unwearable. They're worn. There's makeup on them. They're wrinkled. They're, you know, they don't come back. So I never did a lot of that. I rather, for example, I had a wonderful relationship with Bryant Gumbel, who wore my clothes all through the 1988 Olympics. And he was so well-dressed, so handsome, um, that he really helped put my brand on the map, not because we loaned him clothes, but because we had a relationship. And I think that's the difference. Loaning, you can loan clothes to anybody. You never know if you're going to get the recognitions and you don't make the connection. Okay. Did Brian Gumble ever pay for his stuff? Well, Brian, <laughs> yes, he did. But, but when, we were, when we were working with the networks, part of the deal was that we would provide clothes and we would get credits on the networks. So he didn't pay for them. Is that it? He didn't, Joe Abud, he didn't pay for them. Is that it? Well, on those, when we did it for the for the networks, no. But anything else he wanted, he did, yes. Okay. I, I just don't understand styles anymore. People are paying $2,000 for sneakers and buying a crappy T-shirt for $1,000. I mean, really. I, I just, I just... I, I, I don't get I'm it. I'm sick okay. of the sneakers. You know, Cindy, I, I think the sneaker craze, the kind of prices, and if, you know, sometimes if you know too much, I know how much it costs to make these things. Yeah. And it's 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 highway robbery. You know, when you look at a women's bikini bathing suit that has a quarter of yard of fabric, right, and you see the prices, I, I just can't justify how, to, you know, if you're paying for a logo and paying for a label, not necessarily for a product, and I always hated that. Some of those behinds are so large that it's more than a quarter of an ounce of fabric to cover them, honey. I have seen them yeah. at the beach. There's a story I once heard about you, but my brain is not coming through at the moment. It's about Nantucket. What is the story about yeah. Nantucket with you? Yeah. What? Yeah, well, that's the, the story about... Uh, I was on the beach in Nantucket in a late afternoon one day with my, my wife and my daughters, and I was walking down the beach, and I saw these beautiful stones colored right at the edge of the beach. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, wouldn't these make gorgeous sweater colors? So I took about 80 pounds of rocks and stones back to my home in uh, Westchester. And when I got home, they were all gray. So I ended up having to wax these rocks. <laughs> and I took this bag of rocks through Heathrow Airport, and they thought I was crazy. And I took them to Scotland way up to the north, and I had them make the yarns in the color of the stones. And I went back two weeks later, Cindy, and it was like alchemy. The stones were next to the yarns, and they were the exact same colors. And I always say that the, from the uh, shores of Nantucket to the shelves of Bergdorf's, it was one of the best sweater collections I'd ever done. But it just shows the power of creativity. If you see something and you can create something, it's really rewarding. You really schlepped 80 pounds of stones yes. on an airplane? <laughs> and I remember checking them through. You know, you go through security. Yeah, and well, they looked yeah. at me like I was absolutely the guy that had rocks in his head, not in the bag. So, and um, <laughs> I took them, and, they, and, and believe it or not, they did an amazing job in Scotland. Forget Scotland. How did you pack the stones? How do they you, how do you schlep stones on, on a plane? Well, you, I had, and this is giving credit to my old boss, I had a Ralph Lauren tote bag, a yellow and navy tote bag, and literally, I, you know, I carried them on, and they, you know, they checked them through, they let me take them, and, uh, you know, it, was, it wasn't that big, but it was heavy.
it was about 80 pounds. Okay, okay. Will online shopping, this new thing that we're all faced with, will it mm-hmm. kill stores eventually? You know, I, I think there's a lot to that. I think that if stores don't create theater... And a reason for people to shop, they'll shop online. And now through the pandemic, of course they did. But there is nothing like the experience of touching and feeling and trying on a cashmere sweater in a store. Don't forget, you can see a great picture online. And when you get the product, you can be very disappointed and vice versa. So I still believe that good stores with great service like a Nordstrom, uh, it's still great to shop and have the experience. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm sure you're, you're very smart, and I, I don't understand. But with photos today on the Internet, on Instagram, on, on yep. your stupid phone, I don't see people, the people I know, are not going into stores. Yeah. Well, I think there's a big – and look at the return rates, Cindy. You know, the return rates with shopping online, you think you're getting something, especially for women, fits in the sizes. It's impossible. Plus, you really can't see the quality. You can be fooled by a great photograph, right? You can be fooled yeah. by that. Yeah. But when you go in, and you know, great service and tailoring, all of those things are important. I think without retail, uh, real retail bricks and mortars, that the industry is in trouble. So we need to get our stores back, especially in New York. There's a new trend also, that stuff that was worn, resale, consignment, vintage, What is that all about, and when did that start? You know, in the last 10 or 12 years, say the last 10 years, this whole um, desire for vintage product is old pieces, old Chanel, old Gucci, old Prada. Uh, People have put very high prices on it. Now, part of it is buying into someone else's, you know, style. But another part is people, I think younger generations are looking at recycling, reimagining, reusing things. So in some way, I think you and I would probably think, I don't want anybody else's clothes. I don't want to wear anybody else's clothes. Yeah. But I think younger consumers are thinking more holistically, like, oh, that's a cool piece from the 70s, which was a wild decade, as we both know. Um, You know, maybe it's interesting. So there is something to that. Uh, And I think, you know, now you have to look at people who know how to curate it and find the right pieces. I still have a blouse that I bought, Joe Abbott blouse, and I love it. I love it. I still wear it, and it's very good. Well, but, see, <laughs> the quality is enduring and lasting, Cindy. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Some some models have changed, though. That's another question I want to have answered. Before, they looked like sticks. Now we have size 16 models with behinds that are the size of uh, Escalades. What is that new thing? You know, it's the Why is that? Why have we got fat behind models? Well, you know, it's interesting, Cindy. It's the pendulum, right? We've gone from almost anemic, anorexic-looking models, which was not a healthy message for young women, certainly. And there was a whole uproar in our fashion industry about having more normal or, you know, regular-shaped bodies. But now I think because of everything that's inclusionary, I think, you know, you're seeing maybe not necessarily the most attractive people modeling. But, <laughs> yeah. but you know, beauty's in the eye of the beholder, really. And, you know, we don't want people who aren't, you know, runway models not to love fashion. So 
I think in some ways it's really important and it's good. Um, I think sometimes we, in the fashion industry, we go from one extreme to the other. We go from the skinniest suit to the baggiest, biggest suit. And generally, it's always right in the middle where it's uh, the best taste and the best style. Ah, you're just being nice to everybody. I mean, you're just a nice guy, for God's sake. <laughs> I know you're now into. I, don't know. <laughs> I know you're now into teaching. I don't understand what you're teaching. You're teaching people how to dress, where, and how. What is that? What are you yeah. teaching? Yeah. Well. You know, it's interesting, Cindy, because uh, no one really for men has done what Martha Stewart has done for women. And um, my whole career, you know, I've been designing my own collection for 30 plus years. And it isn't just about selling clothes. It's helping to educate American consumers on how to dress for a wedding, but how to dress for a wake or a funeral or a job interview. And you know, we've always been stepchildren to our European counterparts who do it so well. And, you know, I think at this point, you know, I want to help American men understand how to look and feel better and not just about their clothes and a young guy getting an apartment in New York City for the first time. It shouldn't be all, you know, Yankees and Red Sox posters. It should maybe have a little style in your life, not just with what you wear. So, uh, you know, and I wrote my book Threads in about, you know, in 2005 and also told the stories about why style opens and fashion opens a lot of doors for a lot of young guys and how they can use it to their advantage. What is what is what my English has gone to hell? What are the <laughs> basics for a man to have in his wardrobe? Well, yeah, Cindy, I always talk about this. You could have the five easy pieces in a man's wardrobe. You can have a dark gray suit, a navy blazer, a white shirt, a beautiful pair of gray pants, and a great James Dean leather jacket. And with those pieces, you pretty much got yourself covered in terms of any of your uh, social and professional, you know, events, where you go. And um, you, you, need, you need to start with a fundamental wardrobe for a guy and then build from there. And one thing for a guy, too, is always having things well-tailored. Meantime, it's important the tailoring is an important part. Meantime, I'm getting well-tailored, and they're tailoring me off the air, and I have to hang up, and I thank you for, Joe, <laughs> for talking to me. I loved you. Thank you, sweetie. Cindy, you're absolutely the best. You're a legend. Thank you for having me. Bye, honey. Bye-bye. The Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Okay, listen, here's a flash. Bill de Blasio has told friends he will not, not run again for President of the United States of America the next time around. Aw, oh, it's a real blow to mankind. What I hear is comedy writers all over the country are demanding a recount. Meanwhile, enjoy your day and tune me in again for an hour next Sunday, same time, 1 p.m. to 2. Bye. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.